Good morning. It was kind of a frail uh, response, if I may say so. Good morning. All right, that's a little better. Well, boy, especially when I'm talking about hope. <laughs> it's not a very encouraging word. This is uh, the first, I, I'm not going to commit that it's going to stay at two pieces, I, I must confess. I'm just starting to get my motor wound up, and we'll see exactly how many lessons we do on hope, but uh, this is at least the first lesson on uh, hope, and as you've noticed, I have titled it Hope and Change God's Way. I'm not really, uh, in doing that, I'm not really trying to... Uh, to uh, misbehave in terms of, of uh, current uh, politics, but uh, to really pick up on a theme, I think, that is a very real one in our, in our world and in our culture. And as you know, it is a theme that was picked up in the, uh, in the elections and uh, carried through, and uh, it was called Hope and Change. And, and I think that they really did land on a, on a theme that resonated with people. That is, people were discontent. When you think about terrorism, when you think about uh, nuclear weapons and the proliferation of them, when you think about the situation in the Middle East, when you think about the natural disasters that are facing us in Haiti now and Chile and and whatever, you have to say, and I forgot to mention the economic meltdown, then you would, you would think that people would want to hear some good news about change, uh, the kind of change that would give people hope. And, and uh, so I, I, I commend them for at least being in tune with where people are, but I think it's obvious to us that that hope and that change is never coming apart from our Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. And so I think it's only right for us to focus on, on that and that subject. And that leads me to uh, tell you a little bit about how I chose this topic. You know that, that hope is a, is a word that is fairly popular in the Bible, and we talk about it from time to time, but it's, in, in, in my mind, it's the neglected sort of orphan of those three, faith, hope, and love. For example, last Sunday, love got a good blast, and it should have, because, as Paul makes clear, the one thing that lasts is love. So we ought to talk about it, and we surely ought to talk about faith. I cannot tell you a sermon I have ever heard on the subject of hope. I cannot remember ever hearing a message on hope. When I looked on the Internet, I didn't find many messages about hope. And so that sort of prompted me to say, maybe hope is something that we ought to talk about, especially in the midst of where we are and the mood of our country. The other thing, and I, Brenda Smith had to run to the airport, so I can now talk about her and her absence. But it was really a thanks to Brenda that I was goaded along the, the trail of hope because she shared uh, an event that had taken place with her son, Jeff, who many of us know. And Jeff said to her one time, Mom, why don't you ever give us anything to hope in? And he was talking about the contemporary culture, and he even said, if I have to repeat it, Mom, you watch Fox News, and then you tell us how bad everything is. <laughs> and it's like, I'm dying, and I'm leaving this to you, and lots of luck. And, and so his point was, you know, there surely is a word of hope that needs to be said. Brenda wrote an excellent article, and I'm going to try and get that from her and see if we can post it on Bible.org. But an excellent article in response to that, which I read, and that sort of urged me to take the extra step and to say, it would be good for us to focus for at least a couple of times on what hope is uh, in the Bible. Now, let me make a, uh, just a couple of observations about hope in the Bible. I think you know that, uh, for example, hope is one of those words that can be used either as a verb 
or as a noun. It can be the content or it can be the action that is taking place, and there are a number of other words that that's familiar to us about. It's uh, used about 72 times, and, and that will vary, by the way, depending upon which translation you use. I noticed that the NIV has a, a fair number more instances of the word hope because of their choice in translation. But in the New American Standard Version, it's about 72 times. In the Old Testament, about 80 times uh, in the New. And, and I want to say that when you come to a study like hope and others... You need to be a little bit careful about basing your whole study on a concordance uh, search. And the reason is that you may not find that word as many places as you will find the concept. For example, look with me if you're uh, following uh, at the uh, Old Testament uses of uh, of the word hope and the little bar graph. Are we looking at that yet? Okay, maybe we'll get that next. That's it. Okay. You can see the first time that the word hope, and I also included hoped and whatever, but the the root word hope is found is in the book of Ruth. And it was actually Naomi's words saying she didn't have any, if you want to know the truth. But you would think, would you not, that hope would occur before that, or at least the idea. And if you look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 18, where Paul is talking about Abraham, he says he hoped upon hope with respect to his expectation that God would give him a child, even though he and Sarah were as good as dead, so far as childbearing was concerned. He hoped upon hope. So it isn't that there wasn't hope there. The the word hope may not have been used, but the concept for hope may be. And you'll notice also in that Old Testament usage, that uh, you don't see a lot of it until you get to Job 14 times. And I have to say to you, sometimes it's not used in a positive sense. Job's friends basically said, isn't your hope based upon the fact that you do well? That's bad theology. Because what it meant was that his friends would say, based on that premise, if you do well, you have a right to hope. Because you have lost your hope, or so it seems, you must not have done well. Therefore, the problem must be that you need to repent of sin. And you know that that is not the case. His friends had misled him because his hope was based, in their minds, on his performance rather than on God. So sometimes it's not really there. Psalms, we are delighted to find that it's there. And oftentimes the psalmist will say, my hope is in you. That's good theology and a good place to be. It's also found in Proverbs. It's not surprising that you would find it in Isaiah and Jeremiah in the prophets where they are speaking about that hope, which is uh, to come in terms of the promises of our Lord Jesus. Then notice in the New Testament, I find this interesting. Two times the word hope is used in the Gospels. Now, again, it depends on the translation you use. Two times in the Gospel. And one of the questions I'll pick up later, and not today, is how come Jesus doesn't talk about hope? Why doesn't he use the word hope? Uh, and one of those times, I might add, in John chapter 5, he actually uses that in a negative sense. He says, you have placed your hope in Moses. And obviously that was a false hope. And, the, and I might as well go ahead and say, in Matthew, where it's used, it actually is a quotation from the Old Testament, and it says, in you the Gentiles will hope. So it's a quote from Matthew, not something from the lips of our Lord. Well, we'll pursue that a little bit later. Then you can see, of course, Romans And Paul's epistles are huge on hope, and rightly so. Now, I want to begin with a little bit of a a definition of hope, and I'm not altogether content with what I've done, but I want you to notice some of the elements of, of hope, as I see it in the Bible, that I think are important for us to incorporate in our understanding of it. There are other meanings of hope, and you'll find some of those used in the Bible, and I'm not really going to land there. For example, there are a number of times when it'll say, in effect, I hope to 
for example, the uh, scribes and the chief priests hoped to catch Jesus in his words in uh, Luke 20, verse 20. Herod hoped to see Jesus perform a sign in Luke chapter 23 and verse 8. Paul hoped to see those in Rome on his way to Spain in Romans chapter 15 and verse 24. It's not a bad use, but it's not the sense that we want to focus on in terms of the Christian's hope based upon the work of Christ and on the word of God. There's obviously false hope, and we won't spend much time there either. (laughs) Biblical hope is uniquely Christian. Now, notice a couple of texts. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it talks about these Ephesian saints before they came to faith. And it says, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have the hope about which we're speaking this morning. The hope which we're focusing on is the hope of the Christian that comes through faith in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, you have that other verse. He says, we do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. There's a world of difference between a Christian and an unbeliever with respect to hope. And biblical hope is rooted in God and in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the element of faith or trust. Sometimes it's really difficult to distinguish between the word hope and its use and faith because it almost seems to be a synonymous. Uh, for instance, in the Psalms, they often will say, we hope in you. And really what they're saying is, we trust in you. And, and of course... That's a good thing. And then in Psalm 39, 7, uh, the psalmist says, You are my only hope. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Because we have set our hope on the living God. So to set your hope is almost synonymous with placing your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. So it has the element of faith. So when you come to faith, hope, and love, you understand those two, faith and hope, are very closely related. You cannot have hope without faith. Then faith that we're, or hope that we're talking about is future, and therefore it's not really seen. And you have a, a several texts to that point. But in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul writes, For in hope we were saved... Now, hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. So we're talking about that which is not uh, seen and that which is yet in the future. Then there's the element of waiting. Because it is future and it is unseen, hope is something for which we wait, something that we expect to uh, happen. And that we see in Psalm 62, 5, for example. Patiently wait for God alone, my soul, for he is the one who gives me confidence. Or in Galatians 5, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait expectantly for the hope of righteousness. And then there's that whole sense of confidence and assurance. And here's one of the major ways in which biblical hope differs from the way in which we use the word hope today, meaning I hope so, as in maybe it will, maybe it won't. There is not that element of doubt or insecurity in Christian hope. It is a certainty. It is something that we can go to the bank on. And so we see, for example, in Psalm 71, 5, it says, For you are my hope, O Lord. You are my confidence from my youth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, talks about the perseverance and steadfastness that comes from hope. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. But I guess this is my favorite one. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. The certainty of our hope is an absolute 
fundamental part of what Christian hope is really all about. Uh, then there is the element as well of a change. Remember the, the slogan, hope and change? We really do hope for change. That is, what we are hoping for in the future is not a continuation of more of the same. <laughs> it is something better for which we look. And that is, that is, I think, built into the definition that we see. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19 talks about a better hope. That is, a hope that looks forward to things that are better than what we have experienced. And then there's the element of desire. I think this is in, in, in some of the stuff that I have seen that people have done. It seems to me you have to include the element of hope. Hope is not only something that will happen. It's not only something that's sure and certain. It's not only something in the future about which we can be confident about. It is something we really want. Hope is something that we desire to be. So that it is something that we pursue or at least eagerly await. I was looking at Proverbs thirteen twelve, and the parallelism there where it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The parallelism makes hope and desire uh, closely related. And, and so I think you see that in the scriptures as well. And as I noted, you, you will often see faith, hope, and love uh, listed together in the scriptures. So let's see if we can come up with a kind of a preliminary definition. Hope is the Christian's desire for and confident anticipation of the better things God has promised that are yet future and at present are unseen. That's a little, that's a little clunky, and so I, I pared it down. Hope is a God-based optimism about the future, based upon his words and his works in the past. Isn't that really what it is? Christian hope is our sense of optimism and expectation about the future based upon what God has said and about, upon what God has done. So if there is ever to be an optimist in the crowd, it ought to be a Christian in terms of our looking at the future. We ought to be people who are people of hope. Now, I want to talk, especially this morning, I wanted to focus on hope in the Old Testament. And then we'll look uh, in the New Testament in, in uh, the next message or so. But let's talk about the hope that we can find in the Old Testament. And how does the Old Testament serve to, uh, to inspire and instill hope in the New Testament believer. And I'm focusing particularly on Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, the text that was read. There are a lot of places we could go, but I, I must confess that I really was kind of fixed on Romans 15 because it says in verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Does that not say it clearly? The Old Testament scriptures were written for us so that we might have hope. So I want to explore that a little bit. I'm not going to do an exposition of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, but I want to look at the way the writer uses scripture. But before I do that, I need to underscore the, the fact that is becoming more and more prominent in my mind, and that is the book of Romans is all about... Jews and Gentiles. It is all about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church, about God's working with Old Testament Israel in the Old Testament and with his working with the church in the New. It's all about that. Now, many people will look at Romans and see that as the parenthesis in Romans 9, 10, and 11. I do not see Romans as a uh, 9 through 11 as a parenthesis. I see, in fact, it all as one whole, and the conclusion to his argument is this text in Romans 15, the first part of Romans 15, and that draws it too close. Now, let me just hit some highlights. Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 is really saying this. 
God's law condemns both Jews and Gentiles alike. Both Jews and Gentiles fall under God's divine condemnation. Now, his argument pushes a little further because some of the problem came from, from the Jewish opposition. And, and so actually Paul is saying the, the Gentile is lost and under condemnation, even apart from the law, because there are certain things about God that are known in creation that they reject. So even apart from the law, they are condemned because they reject what they know about God. Some of those things are revealed to us. Uh, is, for instance, Psalm 8 the, the, and Psalm 19, God's glory as it's revealed in his creation. Paul says to the, to the Jews, you know the law and you even consider yourselves teachers of the law and yet you don't do it. So you are under condemnation. You might even say you are under greater condemnation because you know more and you've rejected what you know. But the point is, both Jews and Gentiles are under God's condemnation. Then he says, both Jews and Gentiles may come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the last part of Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. So we're condemned equally. We are saved equally, that is, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, not by law-keeping. And he makes a point of that, especially in Romans 4, where he says, Abraham was saved as a Gentile. He had not yet been circumcised, and he didn't have the law. So in a sense, you could call him a Gentile convert. Then you have Romans 6, 7, and 8, and the question now is sanctification. And what Paul is saying is that you are not sanctified by law-keeping. Judaizers were saying, if people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they must also place themselves under the law. What makes you holy is keeping the law. And Paul says that is not true. We died to the requirements of the law. And so we are not under law, but under grace, Romans chapter 6. And we have been raised to newness of life. We died to sin. We were raised to newness of life. And Paul says in Romans 7, now that I'm a believer, I agree with the law. I love the law. It's holy and righteous and good. My problem is I can't do it. What it condemns, I practice. What it tells me to practice, I don't practice. And the problem is not the law. The problem is that my flesh is weak and sin is stronger than I am. So the law is good, but the law will not sanctify me. Romans chapter 8, it is the Spirit of God who raised the dead body of Jesus from the dead, who will raise my body, that is dead so far as good works is concerned, will raise my body to new life and allow me to fulfill the requirements of the law. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. So the law has a role to play, but it does not sanctify. Only the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit performs that. Then you come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is dealing with the fact that, that many Jews are not coming to faith and many Gentiles are. And his point in Romans 9 is, God didn't choose all of the descendants of Abraham. He chose some, not all. And then he says in Romans chapter 10, the fact is, those who were saved didn't choose God. In Romans chapter 11, he says, God used the rebellion of Israel to open the door of salvation to Gentiles. And now he is going to use the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that ultimately his promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled. So that takes us all the way up now to our text in chapter 14. Chapter 14 has to do with the interrelationship of Jews and Gentiles in church, in the church. So here you have some of those who come out of a Jewish background who won't eat certain foods, who observe certain days, and you have Gentiles who come out of a totally different situation, and now you've got this conflict. And it seems to me, Paul is careful to talk about those who are strong and those who are weak. He doesn't name who they are. 
The reason is, I think when the people of the church read that, the Jewish believer said, that's us, we're strong. And the Gentile believer says, that's us, the Jews are weak. And he says, whoever you are and you think you're strong, your obligation is to serve your brother, not to satisfy yourself. And that service is to be that which brings him up, which edifies him. Now, the question that we see in, in, in chapter 15, then, really pertains to the law. If you understand that the law could not save, it only condemns, then the issue is, if the Christian is not under law, but he's under grace, what is the role of the Old Testament? Remember, that's two-thirds of our Bible. What is the role of the Old Testament if we are not under law, but we're under grace? There are two different views, I think, in the church that Paul is dealing with here. The view of the Jewish, let's assume it's a Jewish believer, a Judaizer. The view of the Jew is the law needs to be brought to bear on the life of these new Gentile converts. We don't want to flood the church with, with Gentile converts who, who are heathen, and so they must be circumcised and they must commit to obey the law. So what they're trying to do is take the Old Testament law and cram it down Gentile throats, to put it crassly. Gentiles are tempted to do the opposite. Gentiles are inclined to say, or may be inclined to say, we are not under law, we are under grace. Let's throw it all out. Remember, that was the question raised in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If wherever we fail, grace uh, exceeds, then the argument could be made, then let's just go ahead and sin because it'll just make God look better and better. So the argument that needs to be made there is, no, the law has a place. It is not the, the, the rule of law that it was uh, for, for some unbelieving Jews, but it has a place. And I think Romans 15 tells us the proper place of the law, and in particular, I think it tells us how the law inspires us to have hope. So take a look at what he says. First of all, he, he, he gives the, uh, the, 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 twofold, the, the responsibility in, in chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2, where he's talking about uh, those who are strong need to bear the weaknesses of those who are weak. They are to seek to edify their neighbor. Interesting, he doesn't use the word brother. I'm not sure at some points that Jews and Gentiles felt too brotherly about each other. But the neighbor, at least, they ought to, they ought to care for them and they ought to sacrifice their own privileges for the benefit of the growth of their brother. And then he turns back to the Old Testament and, and uh, he, he gives us the key. Now, let me, let me just um, give you what I think is the key to understanding chapter 15. If we do not understand what Paul's role was in revealing the mysteries of God, we won't understand what we're reading here in chapter 15. There, especially in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, and in Colossians, Paul makes it clear that his task and his privilege as an apostle was to reveal the mystery of Christ in his church. In Ephesians 2, remember he says that, that they were once, uh, Jews and Gentiles were once alienated, they were distant, they were apart from God, and then God brought the two together into one new man, one new creation. And so in chapter 3, he says, that's the task that I was given as an apostle, was to reveal not what wasn't ever mentioned in the Old Testament, but was never understood from the Old Testament. And that is that God purposed to save both Jews and Gentiles and bring them together into one new creation, the church. That's a mystery, he says. That's why he can say in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about the relationship of husbands to wives, he says, I am speaking to you about a mystery, and the mystery is Christ and his church. So that when you go back and you want to do marriage counseling, I, I wouldn't do marriage counseling from the Old Testament by itself. Because you're going to find yourself in just a lot of trouble. Are you not? 
I mean, are you going to deal with multiple wives and all the stuff back there? What you find is that once Christ comes and brings to himself his bride, the church, now we have the pattern for how it is that a husband is to relate to his wife based upon that which has been revealed in Christ. So Paul's task was to reveal this new thing, this relationship of Christ and his church. When Paul, therefore, cites all these Old Testament texts which talk about the salvation of Gentiles, these were texts that no Jewish believer really got until after Christ and until after the apostles. So Paul is now drawing upon this and saying, what we need to do is understand. And so I call it lifting the veil. That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, whenever the law is read to an unbelieving Jew, there is a veil that goes over their face. In other words, it's just like wham. Something comes down as blinders and they cannot get it. And the reason is the veil is only removed in Christ. So when Paul went about to the synagogues, what did he do? He taught from the Jews from the synagogues. Here are the things that the Old Testament scriptures say are true of the Messiah who is to come. And then he says, here is what we know about Jesus. He has fulfilled all of these things that the Old Testament foretold about him. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. So the key to understanding all of this is to understand the mystery, and that lifts the veil, and that, I believe, is what Paul is doing. So given that, he says, the principle is the strong must minister to the weak. Now he turns to our Lord Jesus and says, he is the supreme example. But where does he go to prove that? He goes to the Old Testament text found in Psalm 69, uh, where, where David is talking about the, uh, the, the insults of those who have rejected God falling upon him. And what he says is, this is a psalm which speaks of Christ. David is speaking. But even beyond that, this is a prophecy of Christ who bears the reproach that men have toward God. And ultimately, of course, that is what brings about the salvation of those who trust in him. But in addition to the fact that he bears the penalty for man's sin, he also, in doing that, becomes the example for men to follow. Now, here's where the liberals get messed up. The liberals want to talk about the example of Jesus, and they don't want to talk about the redemption and the salvation that Jesus has achieved. But both are true. Jesus Christ's death on the cross of Calvary bore the sinner's penalty. And that is how one is saved, by trusting in him. But Paul is now turning to that and saying, in the work that Christ has done, he has provided the example. And that is, he, the one who is strong, has borne the insults for those who are weak, and that is what has brought our salvation. It is also what gives us the standard by which we are to relate to one another. That Therefore, the strong in the church ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are not as strong within the church for unity and to carry out the, uh, the ministry of Christ. The role of the Old Testament now, he goes from that quote in Psalm 69 and verse 3, to talk more broadly about the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, the Old Testament scriptures have been written for us so that they might produce hope in us. And now he goes on to give uh, the goal of the work of God as he has been at work in the Old Testament and is now revealed. And that is that men might worship God in unity, that they might with one voice worship God, Jews and Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, when Christ performed his work on the cross of Calvary, he did it to fulfill his promises to Israel, but also to bring about the salvation of Gentiles. 
And that, of course, is what he's trying to do, is to bring together these people who are now in the church, Jews and Gentiles, different backgrounds, different value systems and whatever, and he's saying, now what has happened is God was at work in this mystery, and these verses make it clear. God had purposed from eternity past to save Gentiles. That was a part of his work. It wasn't something the Israelites grasped. But when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, we see it. For in you, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the salvation that comes through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the goal of that is for God to bring together those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles into one body, and they are now to bring praise to him, then how does that speak to them about their relationship with one another? And if these texts which speak of the suffering of Christ for our salvation say anything to us, it is that we should learn from him to make sacrifices for the benefit of others. And therefore, these convictions that are freedoms for us, that we could do what we eat or don't eat, these matters of freedom, we could set aside so if I were a Jew and a Gentile and I was inviting a, a Jewish believer home for dinner after church, I probably wouldn't serve ham. Not that I couldn't eat it. But why would I be an offense to him? There's, not, there's nothing worth the exercise of that liberty to satisfy myself. I should sacrifice that. So the work of Christ... And the goal of bringing together Jews and Gentiles in worshiping him to the praise of God, that's what the Old Testament is teaching us. And seeing the suffering of our Lord and his endurance is what gives us hope. So that's the way I see this text coming together. Now I want to, I want to move on quickly to move more broadly and to talk about how to find hope in the Old Testament. Especially when you're looking at, at all those books up to the book of Ruth and you don't see the word once. Where do, how do we find hope in the Old Testament? One, remember the mysteries. And that is, there is much that is to be seen in the Old Testament through New Testament eyes that was not seen through Old Testament eyes. Now, that's, that's a pretty critical point amongst uh, some scholars today. And they seem to want to harness us down and restrict us to how those particular people viewed their circumstances in the light of where they were. But you can't do that with the Old Testament. The way in which the Old Testament comes to life is to look back and all of a sudden, like Paul did, see Jesus. Right? He saw Jesus in Psalm 69. So if he can see Jesus, we ought to be looking too. Dr. Walkie used to say in, in seminary, whenever I study the Old Testament, I always pray, Lord, let me see Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, you ought to be doing that. You ought to be looking for Jesus because he's there. It was a mystery to them. It is not a mystery to us because Paul has told us that he is there. Look for God's ultimate purposes for his people. Jews and Gentiles. So now when we read the Abrahamic covenant, we understand that God wasn't promising to bless Abraham at the world's expense. He was promising to bless the world through Abraham and the seed, of course, from whom the Messiah would come. We need to learn about God. When we, when we read in the Old Testament, we ought to be learning about God and who he is. And remember, he is called the God of hope. So if we have hope anywhere, it ought to be hope in God. And that means we ought to be looking at his character. For example, we ought to be looking for his wisdom and power. Isn't it interesting that in the first chapter of the Bible, what do we see? The story of creation in a way that manifests both the power and the wisdom of God. That's, that's why Proverbs is going to pick up and talk about wisdom being there and being evident at creation. So when we see that, we see the hand of God and the power of God who is at work. Same is true of the Exodus. By the way, when uh, we were talking about 
the way in which uh, the Lord Jesus is the Lamb of God in, in, at the Lord's Supper this morning. In Luke chapter 9, at the transfiguration of Jesus, the text says that when Moses and Elijah were there, they were talking about Jesus, literally, Exodus. So there was, a, there was this parallel drawn between the Old Testament Exodus and the work which our Lord Jesus Christ was performing on the cross of Calvary. We ought to see the character of God in the Old Testament. I, I am becoming convinced in my mind one of the most critical texts in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 32, golden calf. God says to Moses, I'm finished with these people. Moses says to God, you made a covenant. You are God. You made a covenant with your people that you would bring them into this land. Your glory rests upon your fulfilling your word. Now, believe me, there was no arm twisting with God. God wanted to hear Moses say it because he was more inclined to quit than God was. Trust me. But the point is, who God is has everything to do with Israel's future. Moses does not say Israel will try harder. He does not say Israel will do better. They are a stiff-necked generation, and there isn't any hope in better performance. The only hope for Israel is God, and that's why he says in late chapter 33, show me your glory, and your glory is that he is gracious and compassionate, loving to forgive sins. That becomes the dominant theme of the Old Testament. And the only time that there is ever a departure from that is Jonah. He is the guy who protests that God is gracious and compassionate, and that ought to tell us a lot about him. But everywhere else, God's grace and compassion is the hope upon which Israel can, can to which it can cling because it is God's character and God's power and God's nature that is the source of our hope and our eternal future. God's faithfulness to his promises, and I'm using that pretty broadly. I mean promises like promises to Abraham, where God says to him, you're going to have a child. To an old man getting older, 25 years later, he, he and Sarah will have that child. But one of the things we learn as we read the Old Testament is, when God says it, it's going to happen. Is that not right? When God says it's going to happen, folks, it's going to happen. God keeps his promises. Now, his covenants are a kind of a special promise that is more, that is broader than just personal uh, promises like you have of Abraham having a child. And they are promises regarding God's plans for his people. And then you remember the writer of the Hebrews says, and in particular those promises that were sealed with an oath, those promises can never, never be revoked. So we have confidence that God keeps his promises. And when you read through the Bible, just show me a broken promise. If you don't find one, then it says God's promises for the future are as sure as his promises were, excuse me, in the past. Now, when you look at God's future promises, it's very interesting because you will discover that some of those critical promises about the future, especially Isaiah, those promises are couched in terms of what God has done. So, when it comes to what God is going to do in terms of creating a new heavens and a new earth, it is called the new creation. But they are, it is explained and described in words that, that are used for the first creation. So when God speaks about making a new creation, you can't hear those words without reminding yourself of the fact that he already made the first one. And now he's going to make another one. In, in, uh, in Isaiah in particular, I confess, this was the subject of my thesis, so I, um, nobody else probably particularly cares about this. But, but when you look in Isaiah... And you see God's promises, he keeps using terminology that he used of the Exodus. And so he'll say, when you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. And he, he's speaking of this thing that he is going to do as the new Exodus. He is going to bring about the deliverance of his people. Is it any wonder that Jesus then speaks of that with Moses and Elijah? So that when we see these Old Testament events, we need to understand their prototypes 
of what God is yet going to do uh, in the future. Okay. So there are some things that we can do to help us uh, as we look at the Old Testament. Now, here's some things for you to think about. One, put your hope in God, not in men, not in political parties, not in governments or earthly processes. I I know that evangelicals, me included, in, in days gone by, thought if only this person could be elected president, if only this person could be brought into this office. Folks, our hope is not in men. Our hope is in God. Hope is found in the scriptures. Psalm 119, very interesting, where the psalmist continually says, in effect, my hope is in your word. He says in Psalm 119, 49, Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. You want biblical hope? Read the scriptures. You won't find it in the Dallas Morning News. You won't find it in Fox News or MSNBC, any of those places. You won't find hope there. You'll find a lot of reason for despair if you stay there too long. But you'll find hope in God's word and in the person of God himself. Keep your hope fixed on heaven. Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, it talks about all these men who died in faith because they understood that the place that they were looking for was not earthly. It was heavenly. And they could die, therefore, and their faith still stood firm. I guess if I were going to sum up what I really want to say this morning, it would be this. Fix your hope completely on God. Fix your hope. I'm talking to me, too, by the way. Fix your hope completely on God. That's what he says. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That says to me that our hope, while it is functionally, while it is is theoretically there, it is something that we need to continually reconnect with. It is something that we need to put as a priority in our minds and our thinking and our action. We need to fuel that hope. True hope is what the world desperately needs, and only the Christian has it. I want to talk about this more later. But remember 1 Peter chapter 3? It says that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. If we are going around, my friends, like Eeyore, oh me, oh my, the world is not going to be asking us about our hope. Our hope is in God, and our hope is in what he is going to do. And people who desperately look for hope and change are going to discover it won't be found in Washington, D.C., no matter what party and no matter what person. It won't be there. And they ought to be looking at Christians who have hope that is heavenly hope, that is rooted in God and their faith in him and his promises. And we ought to have an answer for those kinds of people. Let me say this last. The best news of all that I can give you is there is hope. I can think of no better words to say to anybody than there is hope. I can think of nothing worse to say than there is no hope. Let me give you some examples. When when I preach a funeral, I may not be able to pronounce blessings upon the one who has passed away. If they didn't know the Lord Jesus... There's no hope for them. But for every other person that is listening to that message, I can say to them with sincerity, the only hope you have is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And and, and that's what makes me so frustrated to go to a funeral where, where people tap dance around it and they make it look like everybody's going there. They're lying. The only hope we have is the hope of the gospel And we have it, and others don't. If we don't tell them about Jesus, they won't know, or they may not. Marriage. I've seen people uh, whose marriages were an absolute disaster, more than I would wish to number. But you know what I could say to them from the gospel? There's hope for your marriage. There is hope for your marriage. Because the only hope there is, is the hope of Jesus Christ. There is hope for those in marital mess. Sinners distraught by their sin. I've been in contact with somebody that I don't know 
who is absolutely distraught with sin in their life. And the wonderful thing that I can say is this. There is hope for sinners. Is there not? What? what I mean, they're going to go down to the Dallas County Jail. You know what? The message of the gospel is there is hope in Jesus. By the way, almost the number one hit song throughout any prison in the country is, I ought to ask Bill if he's here, victory in Jesus, victory in Jesus. There is hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. People who are depressed are people who have little hope. I remember reading a, a book by a, a pastor who had had a, a, a breakdown, was being uh, wheeled into the psychiatric ward, and he said the most encouraging thing that was said to him was, there is hope. There is hope. That's the good news. There is hope in the Old Testament, my friend, and there is hope in the New Testament because there is hope in God. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, there's hope. By the way, I think that's the reason why people clung to Jesus. You ever think about that? Why was it that sinners were drawn to Jesus when you would think it would be the opposite? Why was it people were drawn to him? I think because he exuded the fact that in him there was hope. And we ought to be drawing people to Jesus as well. If you have not trusted in him, then your hope is only going to be found in the Lord Jesus. He endured the insults of sinners. He endured the wrath of God and the punishment for your sin. By trusting in him, your sins may be forgiven and you will have eternal hope. And there is hope not only for heaven, there is hope that God will work in your life to bring you into greater and greater conformity to Jesus. Trust in him. Father, we thank you for the fact that in your words, there is great hope. As we look at your character at your actions throughout the Old Testament, we know there is hope. From the very beginning, when man sinned, you came with a word of hope. Through the seed of the woman, a Savior would come. And we know now that Savior is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. There's someone here this morning who has never trusted in him. May they trust him for eternal life. There is someone here who is discouraged, in despair, whose life is a mess. Help them to see there is hope in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.